Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for listening to Truth Be Told. This is Mike Gunn. We're going over day 10 of my trip through Israel. This is a big day. So if I talk too fast, I apologize. Um, and if I just cover way too much information, I also apologize. But you can pause and slow down and speed up as you wish. So we are going to go straight into it. The first thing we saw on this day was the Church of All Nations, which is on the eastern side of the Temple Mount, uh, sitting on the Mount of Olives. It's kind of at the base of the Mount of Olives, um, or maybe just like a tiny bit of the way up. And this is where it's believed uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is, which we know the Garden of Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives. We don't know exactly where it was that Jesus went to pray necessarily, uh, but this is where it's believed that it was. And that's based on some of the excavation they did. Underneath this church, there was um, remains of a Crusader church and a Byzantine-era church, and there were some inscriptions. Uh, let me try and find one to read to you. There were some inscriptions in Greek uh, from early Christians proving that they had been here to the site and found it important. They visited it in some sort of pilgrimage even prior to uh, the Crusaders coming in. So this is some of the evidence they have to go off of. One of the inscriptions on the floor of this 1,500-year-old Byzantine church says, For the memory and repose of those who love Christ, accept the offering of your servants and give them remission of sins. So this shows that at least 1,500 years ago, they were worshiping Christ on this spot. And typically they, they did this because they believed it to be um, a spot connected with the life of Jesus Christ. So that's as far back as the proof goes. Do we know that this is exactly the place? No. Was it somewhere around here? Yes. Uh, there is further proof in the garden itself, which is outside of the Church of All Nations, and these are in the form of olive trees. So we know that Gethsemane, there was an olive press here at some point, so there has to be olive trees there, and they've dated some of the trees back, um, they believe at least to the time of Christ. So there was some people a little bit more skeptical about how old those trees were, but it does seem like there were trees in this spot at least back to that time. So that's more proof that this could be a spot, uh, a potential spot where Jesus Christ went to pray before he was um, betrayed and put on trial and then eventually crucified. So we went to this church and it was probably one of the most beautiful churches I've ever been to uh, in my life. It's designed by uh, Antonio Barluzzi, who also designed the church at uh, the Mount of Beatitudes that we had been to a few days before uh, in the Galilee region. And he really just does a, a good job at making things beautiful. And I, I really appreciate um, beauty as an imperative for churches uh, that that seems to be a thing of the past now, which, you know, I'm okay with that too. It's we, We're not worshiping churches. We're not worshiping the building. But there is something about meeting in a, a space of beauty that puts you in a good mindset um, for awe and wonderment and uh, worship. So I do appreciate going into these places and seeing the level of detail and art that they put into the building itself. And you walk in and um, it's silent. There's no hats. We couldn't wear um, pants. Uh, we couldn't wear shorts and we could wear pants. Man, I got that messed up in the a previous episode as well. You had to wear pants, no shorts um, out of respect and no hats. And it was just really, really quiet in here. There was no talking. And that adds to the ambiance as well, just a bit. But you look up at these ceilings and they're painted. There's kind of like um, recesses in the ceilings and they're kind of in a, a dome shape. And it almost gives like a, a large honeycomb effect because there's all these domes. They're huge though. They're probably 30 by 30 feet wide, little domes. Um, in the ceiling of this church and they're all painted dark blue with gold trim around them. And they're just, they look like the sky. They've got stars in them and a sun and gold leaf everywhere. And normally I find gold leaf to be a little bit, um, just a little bit much, a little bit gaudy, but here I just, I thought it really worked and just was stunning. I could have looked up at the ceiling for a long, long time, but at the front towards the altar, they also have dark blue painted and it's almost like you're looking up at the sky and then you look down towards the altar and you see um, a, a scene that would be at like eye level on the ground. And this here they have like a rock uh, in this painting. 
And this rock is believed to be the rock where Jesus Christ prayed. So they've got a picture of Jesus on the rock praying and an angel coming down to minister to him. And the reason they have this painted here, of course, is because they believe this to be the site where Jesus prayed. But right in front of this, at the altar, they have a rock on the floor, um, huge rock, not like it's not like I could pick it up. It's very flat. They believe this is actually the bedrock where Jesus is believed to have prayed. So it's very flat right on the ground and surrounded by a wrought iron crown of thorns style fence that's about a foot high, not terribly high. And this rock surrounded by the fence is surrounded by another gated area that's made of wood with pews in it that people go to have private worship services. And so me being in Israel, I'm like, I'm going to touch everything I can. I'm going to see if I can touch that rock. Absolutely. I went up to go try and touch the rock, whether it is the rock or not. You know, I don't want to find out later that it's definitely the rock. And then I didn't touch it. That's just who I am. Um, I do this at like museums and stuff too. It's not a great habit. I, I don't think people appreciate it about me, but I don't know. There's something about touching. You're just like, yeah, I touched that. And I don't know why I'm like that, but I know there's other people that are, so I'm not alone in that. But I went to go touch this rock, and the wooden gate surrounding the whole area was closed off. All right, actually, it was open at first, and I got up pretty close, and there was a service being held by some Asian people there on tour. And as I walked to see if I could get into that smaller area, it felt like going in through levels of security or something. It's like, okay, I got into the church. All right, now I got to get past the wooden gate. And then can I get past that? Okay, now there's a wrought iron fence around the thing. Can I kneel down in front of people and touch it and then just walk back out? Is that going to be considered blasphemous or or am I going to make people angry doing this? And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to chance it. I'm never going to see these people again. So I walk right up to the wooden gate. And as soon as I get up there, uh, this Asian guy in the back row shuts the door and he didn't speak any words to me. I'm pretty sure they didn't speak English. Um, and he just shuts the door like right in front of me. And I was like, ah, oh, okay, well, I guess they're having church and we're not going to be here for very long. I mean, we were only supposed to be in this area for a few minutes um, in the church itself. And there wasn't like a ton to see anyways, you know, it's like, see the beauty of the church, walk around, appreciate the artwork, touch the rock, or at least see the rock and then leave. No one actually promised me I could touch the rock. So there wasn't a guarantee, but I was still going to try. But when he shut the door and they were having services, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to like jump the gate into their church service to, you know, get back in. So I left. I left a little bit disappointed, even though I wasn't 100% convinced that this was exactly the rock that Jesus prayed on. I was a little bit disappointed not to have touched it. I walked out of the building. And just a few minutes later, I'm waiting on everybody else to filter out. One of my friends, Michelle Waterhouse, who's probably listening, came out and said, Micah, they opened the gate. And so I was like, thank you so much. So I rushed back in. So thanks, Michelle. I appreciate appreciate your help with that. I rushed back in. I see that the gate is open, but people are streaming towards it. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll just get in line. You know, we can shuffle our way forward. There's like a very narrow opening. I feel like um, I'm about to be attacked by the Spartans, you know, that, that battle where they they like pinned their enemies in along this like cliff face on either side so that only a few could get through. That's kind of how it felt. We're just filtering in through this tiny space. And eventually I get pretty close to the front and I notice that everybody going in is taking communion from the Catholic priest. (sighs) Okay. So I had a lot of physical obstacles. Now I've got a spiritual obstacle. What do I do here? Is it okay to take communion from a Catholic priest? I've never done that before. Uh, My church takes communion, or if you want to call it communion, we take the bread and the wine at Passover once a year. We don't believe you need to take it, um, you know, every week or as often as you'd like. We take it once a year. And so I've had Passover this year. I don't really know that I need to take another one. Am I going to be taking these sacraments and are they going to be meaning something and I'm taking them in vain or do they mean nothing because I don't recognize the authority of this Catholic priest. So this is something I'm all going through in my head for a while and I asked a few people around me, I was like, what do you think? I mean, I want to touch the rock. Like, can I eat the the wafer and the wine just to do it? Like, it's kind of disrespectful to them, but I want to touch the rock and that's how they're making me do it. And they said, some of the friends that were with me were like, I mean, are you hungry or thirsty? Because 
yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It just go ahead and you can do it if you want, but that's how you touch the rock. Fortunately, once I got up there, they stopped giving out communion. I mean, they had to put a cap on it at some point. There's hundreds of people in this church. And once they stopped giving communion, people started flowing in and kneeling down to touch the rock. So I got to touch the rock and it only took me two tries of going into this church to do it. And I don't know what significance that has, but I absolutely touched the rock. So that was pretty cool. And there is something interesting. Even if this isn't the site, you are put in mind of what happened around here. And so to connect your senses to it as much as possible is helpful in fully taking in the experience of the place. It's not more holy, uh, in my opinion. It's not better or more righteous to do this. Um, Like I said, I'm not sure this is actually the place that it happened. But when you're in the mindset of it and you look at this rock and you're, you're picturing your Savior, Jesus Christ, praying on this rock, it's just there's something about that that puts you in mind of the event and makes you consider it a little more closely. So I appreciated the experience and I, I thought it was a cool thing. So I, got, I left the church and everyone's like, did you touch the rock? Like it was kind of cool at that point because I felt like people were on my side. Like it wasn't just me trying to force my way into having experiences throughout Israel. It was people looking out for me, knowing things that I wanted and I could express things that I wanted to do and try and see and people would be on the lookout for them, you know? That was a nice feeling. So it was cool that my friend Michelle, you know, she told me the rock was open to touch. And it was cool that when I came out, people were like, hey, I know you wanted to touch the rock. Did you get to? What happened? They all wanted to know if I took communion or not. And so that was just kind of an interesting experience, um, but really a beautiful church. You should look up pictures of it. Actually, speaking of which, I should have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but I didn't. I am working right now on getting a Google Drive together with labeled pictures from my trip that you can click on uh, wherever you're listening. It should have it in like wherever you'd read the description of this episode. I'm going to try and have a link there of pictures labeled by day and then labeled by site as well. So that way, as you listen through, you can see pictures. I realize I should have done that from the beginning, but I haven't and I'll just do it retroactively. So um, perhaps if you're listening to this, you can go to um, the description of this, scroll down, and you'll see a link for a Google Drive that hopefully works. If everything you know works out, then you'll, you should be able to see pictures of all this stuff. So just keep that in mind. Uh, but this was the first thing we did. We saw this church, and it was beautiful and a really cool experience. The next thing we did was head over to like across the street. I mean, it's crazy at this place. One more thing before I move on. You're here at the Garden of Gethsemane or what is potentially the Garden of Gethsemane or at least surrounding the area where that was. And you are looking across at the retaining wall of the temple and you're seeing the eastern side of it. So you would be facing west, but the eastern wall is facing you. And you see this and it's, I mean, it's, it's insane to me to think that for one, this is where Jesus Christ says he's going to return to, you know, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And so that means he's going to be coming from, uh, from the, the West and head or no, sorry, from the East headed West and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and he'll come back to the temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's insane to be able to have a picture of that in my head of, of what's coming is just absolutely wild. Another thing, though, that's interesting is because people know this prophecy, um, especially um, Muslim people, because they're they're not exactly pro-Christian, um, they are or pro-Jewish. Actually, it's not even necessarily against Christianity. A lot of it's against Judaism because they believe that's how um, their Messiah is going to come as well. It's just they think that's the first time. I think it's the second time. But um, so what they've done here is uh, the Muslim people have put, or anybody who's really against the idea of a Messiah coming back to save the Jewish people or or for Christians as well, they have put a graveyard here at the eastern wall of the temple so that nobody can cross over it without being unclean or made unclean. And so this is like, it's like one step to try and get a prophecy not to be fulfilled, even if it were going to be fulfilled. And this is intentional. I mean, you can look it up. This was done with the intention of spiritually barring the way for Messiah entering into the temple. 
The other thing they've done is completely block off the gate. It's called the Golden Gate, and um, you can, I mean, you can look up pictures of it, and it's uh, completely blocked up. I mean, you can see the outline of the gate, but there's stones um, just completely sealing the entry, and you can see the the tip of the the dome of the rock just right over the top of it. And so um, it's it's like two attempts to try and keep Messiah out of Jerusalem, which uh, is a shame. I don't think it's going to hinder him very much, for one, because Jesus Christ is cleanliness himself, and so he can't be made unclean, which can be seen with the woman with the flow of blood. She touches Christ, and Christ doesn't become unclean. She instead becomes clean. So I don't think the dead bodies are going to really hinder him too much. Secondly, I don't think he's like... I mean, the New Testament shows that walking through doors isn't really a problem for God, but also he's descending from the sky. Like, why does he need to then walk across to the temple? Why can he, I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He's God. So I'm not sure exactly how they think this is supposed to stop Christ from coming back or the Jewish Messiah from coming, but that is what they're trying to do. So just an interesting, like current, um, something current that kind of happened or, you know, within the last few hundred years, not like thousands of years ago, that uh, really, you know, it's not so big big a deal anymore. It didn't seem like there was a lot of hostility or animosity in Jerusalem between cultures or faiths. Um, but there are these things underlying that are, are like politically minded and religiously minded. And here, politics and religion are like, they're kind of hand in hand. So that's just an interesting manifestation of that. But after uh, after we left and we could see the, the eastern wall of the temple and envision Jesus Christ coming back and consider the fact that as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he can see the gates open up and his his uh, arresters coming to get him. Like he, I mean, he could witness that happening. This is not something that he was, not only was he not taken by surprise with it because he knew it had to happen, but also... You know, from from where you are on the Mount of Olives, you can look across to the gates of the temple and see them opening up. You could see them carrying torches down the mountain into the valley, and then right back up the mountain Mount of Olives to come and get you. So he had opportunity to run, and he absolutely didn't. And all this stuff just kind of comes to light when you're standing here in in the spot. But after this, we went from the eastern side of the temple all the way across to the western side. And we entered into the, the Temple Mount area. Or Sorry, we didn't enter the Temple Mount area. We entered um, ancient Jerusalem. So the Temple Mount area, we only went to one time. But I might get that confused because when you're in old Jerusalem, it feels like you are at the temple in a way. Like there's all this... There's all this history and there's all, I mean, there's such a huge city of Jerusalem surrounding ancient Jerusalem that it's almost like Jerusalem part one and Jerusalem part two. But when you enter ancient Jerusalem, you're like, oh, okay, now I'm in this like slightly more holy place. It, it kind of has that feel to it, even though it's not necessarily. Um, and so we went into ancient Jerusalem, older Jerusalem surrounded by the retaining wall, but not actually the Temple Mount proper. And we went to the Western Wall. And this, I'm sure you've heard of it before if you haven't been to it or um, if you haven't heard of it on the off chance. This is uh, the retaining wall that the Jewish people have access to that several of them will go to and they will pray. And they, especially during holy times of year, like the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what was happening around this time, they'll go here and they'll pray. And essentially they're in mourning for a time where they will have access um, not just access, but control over the temple again. They're waiting for kind of a a rebuilding of the third temple, but also a time when their Messiah will come and like raise them up and and they will have control of the temple mount completely. And it's not aggressive. It's it's literally a mourning, but they, they go here and they pray and their praying is fascinating. This was, I, I think this was one of the most culturally fascinating places to me. Um, just because of how different it was from everything else that I'd seen so far. So the first thing that happens when you walk in is that you've got to go through security. And it's it's pretty strict, um, a lot like going through an airport. So it's not so strict that like you got to strip down to your skivvies or anything, but you definitely have to walk through metal detectors and get things out of your pockets. And you're not really trying to joke around, especially at this point. We're not sure 
like how are things between Jews, Christians, and Muslims in this area? Um, our guides didn't seem worried. The people working there didn't seem worried. The regulars there didn't seem worried at all. But you know, all of us were thinking, this this might be a little uncomfortable. We don't know how everybody feels about us or how everybody feels about each other. And so this is like kind of our first exposure to this intercultural mixing that's going on uh, in Jerusalem. But it all went fine. Uh, we went through security without much problem at all. Um, something we noticed on the outside of security, uh, well, first of all, you got to go through a men's side and a women's side. So once you're past that side, men and women can be back together again. But to go through security, you have to go through one side or the other. And then um, you enter out into this like pavilioned area to be able to walk down to the Western Wall. But the thing you notice on the outside of security is there's all these like vendors that are selling things and it's things like palm fronds or there's like this citrus fruit thing. It's like the size of a pomegranate, but it's kind of more like a, more like a lemon or something. And they've just got all these like different things that they use for their prayer that people are selling. So you go and uh, if you were going to go to the wall and you're going to pray, you need all these things to do it properly according to Jewish custom and tradition. Um, but carrying that stuff all the way from home or even procuring that stuff at different places might be difficult. And so they sell them right there. Uh, it was kind of funny cause I was hanging out with one of my friends, um, Alan, and we were commenting about how it seemed like so many people like were buying this stuff. And it's like, man, you, you brought your palm from, but you forgot your lemon or you got your lemon, but you forgot your palm front. It's like, did you not know where you were coming today? And it was just kind of a funny joke we had the rest of the time. Like, wow, that guy, he's prepared palm front and lemon in hand. Like absolutely just nailing this, this religion. And so we joked about that forever. And I don't know why it was just so funny to me. Like I just, I laughed so much while we made those jokes, but they are, I mean, not jokes at the people. Like they're trying to be devout. They're trying to, um, you know, practice their religion down to the T, which is definitely known in the Jewish community. Um, and they're all dressed up, like they all have different clothing on. So they're wearing like dark blue or black with these like prayer shawls on. And so it just very much looks like um, it's it's not just like, I mean, first of all, going into Jerusalem, you see a lot of different, like it's clearly a different culture. You've got um, Orthodox Jews with like long curled uh, sideburns. They've got tall hats. They've got, some of them have yarmulkes on. They've got long black robes and tassels. And um, you're trying to like differentiate between the certain sects. And um, it's just, you kind of get a sense of, wow, even within this one culture, Judaism, there's a lot of other uh, cultures and particulars about it. Um, And you see that here at the Western Wall very, in a very, very prevalent way. Just everyone is dressed to the nines, like hyper-religious. And I guess some people actually, if they're Jewish, don't go here. Like they make it a point to not go here and they kind of shake their heads, the people that do, because, well, for one, they're not at the wall of a temple. Like the temple is not standing. And so when they're standing here at this Western wall, it's not a wall of a temple. It's a retaining wall that was built to kind of set the temple up higher and make it more grand. Um, during Herod's time. So it's still old. It's still connected with, it's like surrounds what would have been the temple, but it's not the temple itself. And so the Jewish people that don't go here, look down on the people that do. And they say, you guys are just worshiping stones. You guys are rocking back and forth and you're, you're praying to these stones that aren't even the temple. And so they take issue with it. And, you know, it just really, um, depends on where you stand and what, what your faith dictates. But once you actually get in through security, you're in kind of this uh, corridor, not corridor, you're in like a big open area um, that you can kind of reconnect with the people you you missed and uh, the lim- ladies and men can get back together. There's hand washing stations so people can do like ritual purification, which I think is interesting that that's still going on after all these years. And then you, to your right, like you, you walk in through security and then the Western wall is to your right. And you have to walk uh, through some gates, like down a ramp and through some gates to get to it. And there's one side for men and one side for women. So if you're going to go and uh, pray there, you have to separate as well. I noticed the women's side was really quiet. 
um, you couldn't really hear. Uh, I mean, you could hear that there were people there, but if I had my eyes closed, I definitely noticed a lot more noise coming from the men's side, and they were praying incredibly loudly. I mean, just, I mean, I couldn't understand them because they're speaking in Hebrew, obviously, but just very, very loud, like, utterances and prayer and wailing and all this stuff, not quite screaming, but definitely just there's no one quiet in the whole place. And it was pretty full. I would say um, there's like a marble ground area right at the base of the Western Wall. And that is a really big square area that people can um, kind of walk into. And so this whole this whole outdoor room can be filled basically and getting up to the wall itself can be hard. Like if you're late to getting there, it can be really hard to get up to the wall itself. Fortunately, it was probably only about a quarter full when we went here this time. It wasn't like a high holy day or anything. And so when I saw it, I still was like, wow, that is impressive. That's a lot of people doing a lot of prayer very loudly. Um, But we went back a different day and just looked into this place and it was way more packed. So I cannot imagine what that's like. But the thing is people want to go and be close to this thing that connects them with the past. And so they go and they, they pray there, they touch the wall. And when we got there, it was a little bit intimidating. Um, I kind of lost track of some of the people I was with. I was I had um, my dad and one other guy, Jim Hopkins, who's also probably listening, and just a, a friend of mine from my church. And we um, went into this area and we're like, okay, um, we'd like to get up there, try and touch the wall, just to say, again, because that's who I am. I got to touch all the rocks I can. Um, we want to get up there, but it doesn't even look like we're supposed to be in here. Like we're the only ones with like t-shirts and jeans or polos and jeans. Or, you know, we're the only ones not wearing like prayer shawls and the appropriate religious garb. So um, it was kind of intimidating and I wasn't sure if we were supposed to go up there. But and even like my dad and Jim, they're like, I, I don't think we're supposed to be here. And I looked and people saw us walk down into this area and no one said, get out. No one said, you can't be here. They just turned and looked at us and then went back to their prey. Like they're very unconcerned about us. I was like, all right, well, they see me and they're not rejecting me. So I'm going to try and get up as close as I can. So I just started walking and I'm a big guy. So anywhere I went, my dad and Jim just followed behind me and we were able to carve our path all the way up to the front. Now, by the time we got up there, like it's, it's tough. I'm not a huge fan of going into big crowds, not because I am like claustrophobic, but I was just thinking like, man, I'm a big guy. I am very much in people's way. They've got to move like quite a bit to get out of my way. And I know it's annoying, but really everybody was pretty involved in what they were doing. Um, and they only paid enough attention to move out of the way and then move back into the place once you like walked forward more. So they were kind in getting out of the way and allowing me through Um, they didn't seem to be bothered too much. And even when I got up to the wall itself, I sat there and I thought, man, I don't know, like I'm one person away from the wall, but they have these white lawn chairs that are in this courtyard area. And these white lawn chairs are even right up to the wall itself. And you'll see some of the older gentlemen like sitting in these chairs right at the wall, praying and reading scripture and they shake back and forth and they close their eyes and they do this whole thing. And I'm like, man, do I tap this guy on the shoulder or do I just reach over top of him? You know, he's, he's not a very tall guy. Um, but my dad said when he walked up, like this guy saw him and he scooted his chair over and he motioned for him to go towards the wall. They probably figure we're going to be there for a short time and then leave because we're not there to worship in some sort of religious way. We're just there to see the site and um, kind of be immersed in the culture a little bit. So it wasn't an issue getting through the crowd. But I would imagine if the whole courtyard was full, it would have been quite a bit more difficult. So I was grateful that we were able to get through. I put a little note in the wall, prayer that my mom gave me, because that's the thing they do. I mean, you walk up to it and you can just see in all the cracks of the wall, people will go and they put written prayers into the wall. And for some reason, that's supposed to make them come true. So who knows if that uh, is a real thing with any evidence to it or not. But if that's the thing they do in the culture, that I, I'm glad I got to do it. Even though I didn't put my own prayer in there, I just... To be honest, I, I wanted to, and then, uh, not because I think it's some more special prayer or something, but just because that's what you, that's the custom of going there. Um, but I didn't have time. I just didn't think like, I didn't really have laid out in my head how this day was going to be going or like, we're going from this to this. So in between there, I need to sit down and write out a prayer. Like I, I kind of just had 
go with the flow mentality because we were told at the beginning of this day, this will be the busiest day of our whole time. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be a lot. So we need to stay together, stay focused. Like it was very much emphasized, which was good because I think that helped us succeed in getting through everything. But also um, it left me wary of like, oh, do I take out a notebook now and write something down or do I have time later? And it just, it kind of, I missed my chance, but I did fortunately get to put a note in there. So I did the act, even if I didn't get my own prayer. And, um, but that was, it was really cool. I, I really enjoyed it. I got some good pictures from that, uh, that spot as well. And as we're walking out, you know, they've got tables with Bibles and books and people with carts wheeling books in. And my dad said, yeah, those are free. And I was like, man, really? I kind of want to take, like, it's a Hebrew, uh, a Hebrew Bible, you know, and I've been trying to work out my Hebrew letters and so I thought it would be a cool thing to have, but I was like, that seems totally wrong to walk down here. I mean, they were definitely there for use by the people. I'm not sure they took them home, though. Um, but I did not take one, even though it was there, and I probably could have, but I'll just Amazon order one, so that's not a big deal. So that's what we did there. We met back up with everybody, um, men and women. At that point, it was like not only were men and women separated but pretty much everybody was separated from everybody because we're all trying to weave our way through this big crowd. And like I said, I just, I completely lost track of everyone. Um, so we all kind of gathered back up and we walked out of that area. And after this, we went to this awesome place just kind of around the corner and it was called the Temple Institute. Um, and we, we walked down the street to it and we could see uh so this is all in the Jewish quarter of Israel. It's split into four quarters. There's the Temple Mount area. There's the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, and the Armenian quarter. And uh, we were in the Jewish quarter going to the Temple Institute. And on the street in the Jewish quarter, they've got in glass this giant golden menorah. And it looks like, yeah, they just constructed this thing to show us what it would have looked like and whatever, whatever, whatever. But you read the plaque and our guide was telling us, no, this was made by the Temple Institute, because what the Temple Institute is, is an organization that has dedicated themselves to preparing for the building of the third temple. They fully believe that a third temple will be built in the world, in our lifetime, um, in some future time, and they're prepared for it. They're ready. And sometimes they go a little bit far, actually, in the things they'll say. Sometimes it's like, yeah, well, maybe we go up there and we raid, or maybe we go up there and we start taking down the dome of the rock or, uh, there, there's, and they'll just kind of say things, uh, very thinly veiled about what lengths they would want to go to, to try and get the temple, uh, reinstituted. And so I'm not saying they would do it. They are not a terrorist organization by any means. They're not actually doing anything about it, but they, they are doing things in active preparation for what they know in their hearts is coming at some point. Um, some people associated with the institution, or at least some fringe people that maybe have donated to it or believe in the cause, have done things even as far as like trying to sneak goats up to the top of the Temple Mount and sacrifice them. And they only get so far, but it's still like it makes major news whenever it happens. And so these guys are kind of like the official organization of that movement. They're not doing some of those things. They're not the ones actually, like I'm not trying to associate them with those people necessarily, but it's that idea that a third temple will be built and that the temple practices will be reinstituted that kind of motivates these people. And so this golden menorah is not just like a statue or a replica to show something interesting from history. It's literally the menorah that they believe will be at one time put into this third temple. And it's it matches the dimensions and specifications um, as close as they could find from scripture and from Jewish tradition. So, uh, they've got it there and it was pretty cool to see, you know, walking by it, I never would have stopped and I would have taken a picture, but I wouldn't have stopped and thought much of it. Um, but yeah, it's pretty significant and kind of impressive to see, honestly. So after this, um, we went to the temple Institute and it was pretty impressive. Um, it was kind of like, it almost felt like walking through like a wax museum or something. So some parts of it were a little bit like the statues were a little bit hokey or whatever, but all the temple instruments are a hundred percent there and a hundred percent like ready to go. Even as far as like the altar where they would do sacrifices on, they've got it on wheels so they can roll it right up there. It takes like 
30 minutes to disassemble to the point that it can tran- like be transported and then another 30 minutes to put it back together but that's it so it can be ready incredibly quickly and this was uh they've got like cameras on the outside of the building and it's kind of tucked away but this was really interesting to me because i just kept thinking like i don't know like how someone hasn't attacked here more often because this seems even though they're not threatening anything this i mean i've told you earlier about the blocking up of the golden gate and the the um, cemetery that was built there to stop messiah from coming this is like also very much actively attempting to fulfill prophecy that the Jewish people see needing that needs to happen. So I can't imagine that all these sites aren't like attacked often, but it doesn't seem like they are like it seemed safe and secluded and I don't know, kind of nice. So we went there and we got to walk through the whole building. I only took one picture because as soon as I took the picture, um, a voice came on over the room and it said, please refrain, refrain from taking pictures. So I only got a picture of, um, it's like a reconstruction of the temple during Herod's time with like the white stone and the gold leaf and everything. So that was cool to see. Um, but they've got everything. They've got the vestments for the priests. They've got, uh, the carts for the showbread. They've got incense dispensers and holders. They've got instruments. Um, I mean, everything you could think of from the book of Exodus and Leviticus, like they have got, and they are ready down to the oil, which I would not have thought of. Um, like if you think back to the Maccabean revolt, you've got, um, only a small amount of oil that they had that was consecrated for temple use. And it's supposed to last, like, I mean, they hoped it would last eight full days because it took eight days to consecrate oil that could be used for the temple. So even down to those fine details, the story is that um, the oil, the sparing oil that they had ended up lasting miraculously for eight days. And that's why they keep um, eight nights of Hanukkah. But um, that's really neither here nor there. But like, I don't think about things like the oil. I think of things like um, the altar or some of the bigger ticket items, but they've got, I mean, pretty much everything down, like absolutely down. So it's cool. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that in the future, but it's something to keep an eye on and definitely something that I, um, am interested. I'm just glad I went there to see, it showed me the mindset of the Jewish, some of the Jewish people towards a third temple. It showed me how serious they are about it. Um, I don't think they're going to be like attacking the temple Mount. That's, that's not going to happen. But if something were to happen where the temple Mount were attacked, uh, they're ready. They're ready to go. So that was um, definitely insightful and very, very interesting. Uh, from there, we we stayed in the Jewish quarter for a while. Um, got some cool looks uh, down across by the Mount of Olives. We had to walk up so many stairs. Man, it's like there's there's like two types of ascension, it seems like, to get into Jerusalem. The first one is like up the mountains, which we talked about uh, the last in the last episode. But the second one is just the amount of stairs to get up to anywhere is significant. I mean, it's a lot of stairs and there were a lot of people. I felt bad. There were, um, people with like strollers and they would just, they'd go up these stairs and they just carry their baby in a stroller and they'd have a family of like eight. I'm like, man, I'm just like trying to make sure me and my dad get up here. And pretty much my dad can take care of himself, you know? Um, but we did get some good looks from up at the top of like the Mount of Olives and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is um, another mosque built on the Temple Mount. Um, Mount of Olives is just like, if you look at the pictures of it, it's covered. It looks like, it just looks gray from a distance because it is so covered in tombs and graves. So that was pretty cool to see. Um, and then we we just got lunch. That was really all we did uh, at this point in time. We I got shawarma which was good. They, they've got it everywhere there. And this was like my first time having it. Um, got it from a little tiny hole in the wall place and just sat down and enjoyed the the day. It was cool to just kind of people watch and see the different cultures walking by. And it, it was, it was a really nice lunch. It was just me and my dad sitting there eating shawarma, but not only was the shawarma awesome, but the, uh, just the, the people watching was great and just seeing everything go on was really cool. From there, we kind of just took a little bit of a tour around the Temple Mount itself. So we saw the retaining different retaining walls. Um, there's one where they wanted to point it out to us because we had seen a stone that had fallen from the top here, and um, it's just it just looks like a corner of a brick building. 
but at the top of that corner, there would have been a stone, and that stone is now in the Israel Museum, and the stone would have inscribed on it, um, place of trumpeting or spot of trumpeting. And this is where on holy days, the trumpeter would go like for the Feast of Trumpets, and he would blow uh, silver trumpets. So that was pretty cool to see. And we went around that side of the building we saw like where Robinson's arch was, which is, would have been another entrance into the temple. Um, and there's huge stones just absolutely torn down, um, pushed off from the top there. So, uh, we just kind of took a little bit of a, a walk around the outside of the temple in order to get to the city of David and the city of David in, in the Bible. Um, well actually, um, Bethlehem is also sometimes referred to as a city of David, but for the most part, the city of David is uh, Jerusalem, just ancient Jerusalem. And this is where the people would have lived at the time when David instituted Jerusalem as being the, or what God did through David, instituted Jerusalem as a place of worship, the, the national place of worship, where kind of the headquarters of everything was going to be. So if you remember from the Old Testament, it had been at Shiloh before, it had been traveling with the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle got taken, and then David, when he became king, brought it back into um, the mainland of Israel. Now, it was in Israel already, but he kind of re-remembered it and re-brought it into importance and significance and brought it to Jerusalem. And this is where um, the tabernacle stayed, and then eventually a temple was built. So this is why Jerusalem is like the place. Uh, but the city of David that we went to was just like ancient Jerusalem. So there are like wealthy homes here in this area that are closest to the temple. Um, there are, there's an entrance into the temple itself. It's kind of walled off now, but you can see where they would have walked up the steps to get there. Um, and you can even see where the entrance would have been. Like there's very clear, it's like you got a wall, right? Made of brick and up at the midpoint of the wall there are like protrusions of bricks in the outline of what would have been a gate. But now there's bricks filling that hole so you can't get up there. And then there's no incline bridge or arch to get up to that spot either. But it would have been a place that people could walk uh, from the stairs and then up to the uh, temple itself. And this would have been the area um, from people would go from the Pool of Siloam which is down at the base of this elevated area. And they would walk up towards the temple. And this is kind of where we are in this time uh, in the city of David. And uh, it was, it was cool. There, there's mikvahs everywhere. So you can see where like um, people would have done their ceremonial cleansing, but also uh, we got to see some stairs that are first century. So from the time of Jesus and we sat on these stairs and they would have been where Jesus himself possibly entered into the temple. Actually, very probably this is where, um, this was confirmed by our, our guides and also some of my study. This is probably where Jesus overturned, uh, the carts, uh, when he came into the temple and saw that they were basically just selling and buying things and, um, really, taking advantage of the people, you know, they'd come in with a sacrifice and they'd be like, oh yeah, this one's not good enough. You have to buy one from us or we'll exchange money with you so you can make a donation to the temple, but um, it's going to be at exorbitant rates. So Jesus saw this, overturned the, the money changers and drove them all out probably here on these steps or at this entrance to the temple. So that was cool to see. And it's also probably where Peter gave his sermon because this would have been where the Gentiles primarily were able to go up and enter through the temple because it would have led them right to the Gentile, uh, not the Gentile quarter, um, the area where the Gentiles were able to go. So not up close to the temple itself, but just along the outside. So the court of the Gentiles. Um, and this is where Peter would have probably given his sermon on Pentecost to all the people. So to stand here on these steps was um, really an incredible thing. And then for a while, you know, they were talking like for a while, we weren't sure like, how the Bible mentions on this Pentecost, they baptize all these people. How could they have done that? Well, they kept on digging and digging and digging, and they found all these mikvahs. It was like one of the largest concentrations of mikvahs in the whole area, and they're all very deep, like much deeper than normal. So very possibly, this is where all the baptisms happened um, in the book of Acts. And it's interesting. I mean, it's a lot different than I thought of it. It's just like stone bathtubs basically, but you know, whatever works, wherever you got water. 
So that's where we went uh, to see that. And again, we we um, we wa- th- sorry. So I said we we saw the Robinson's Arch earlier, but we actually saw that uh, after the City of David, and that this is where we was we saw the. Um, the Stone of Trumpeting, where that would have been. We saw the Robinson's Arch, which is where other people would have gotten into the temple from, I believe, the west side of the temple. Yes, that's correct. So Pool of Siloam uh, at the base of the west side, and then you would go onto Robinson's Arch, and it's named after Robinson, who is the guy who found the arch or like uncovered where it was. Um, and then they would have you know, normally when I think of going to the temple, I think of like steps up and that's true. You could go up through steps, but there were also these archways, which are just like giant ramps that, uh, you could go underneath if you wanted to, but the ramps would lead right into or on top of the temple mount itself as well. So Robinson's arch is now completely blocked off. You can't get there not only cause it's blocked off because, but because the, the arch uh, that you would walk on to get there is also absolutely crumbled. But we could see where it was, and that's really cool. And there's some of these pictures, like, some are from up close. That's why it's hard. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of different sides. Like, was this on the west side or the east side or the south side, north side? And it's kind of hard to tell from the pictures. I have to, like, close my eyes for a second and actually, like, envision where I'm standing in the area. But, yeah, Robinson's Arch is on the western side. So... Um, and some of these pictures are just like close up. It's so hard to tell, but from farther away, I'm like, Oh, okay, there we go. There we go. Um, after this, we did what I think is probably one of the coolest things we did the entire time. And what probably a lot of people have been waiting to hear about, um, cause it's kind of a big ticket item. I mean, being around Jerusalem is incredible and all the things we've seen up to this point have just been mind blowing for me. But Hezekiah's Tunnel was one of the things I was really looking forward to and also a little bit apprehensive about. And just prior to going, I had asked our guide, I was like, all right, you guys have been with me this whole time. You know what I'm capable of. You know, I'm keeping up, you know, I'm, you know, I'm I'm able to do things, but I'm also like six, four and broad shouldered. Can I get through Hezekiah's temple or no, sorry, Hezekiah's Tunnel? Am I going to make it? And they were like, oh yeah, you'll make it. I was like, oh man, thank you so much. Like I was so nervous the whole time, like this whole day, I knew we were going to be going to it. And I thought, what if they like are looking at me thinking, oh man, we're going to have to eventually tell him that he can't go because he can't like physically get through it. I was super nervous about that, but they were like, no, 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 no. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. It's not going to be comfortable. You're not going to have fun with it, but you'll definitely get through. And I was like, I still think I'm going to have fun with it. So we walked to Hezekiah's tunnel and remember like we are up high, like I'm looking at pictures right now. Um, even just from Google showing maps of Hezekiah's tunnel. Like if you type in Hezekiah's tunnel on map of Jerusalem, I'll actually try and include this, uh, in the Google drive as well. But I mean, even at the temple, if, even if you're like not at the top of the temple Mount itself, just like outside the walls, you are still at a pretty high elevation, Um, as far as everything else around you goes. And it's hard to tell that exactly because, I mean, we know because we've climbed a billion stairs to get here to the top, but it's kind of hard to tell because there's walls and giant buildings that are on top of this place. And so you can't like look out and see just how high up you are like you can at some of the other sites in Israel. And so, but we really are quite high up. And even the city of David, which is a little bit farther down, like you know, not quite as high as the Temple Mount itself, you're still way up there. And so we go from City of David, we go from like the the side of the temple to around towards the City of David again. And we start making our way towards Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's a little bit of a walk. Um, There was a bit of walk, a bit more walking this day because buses are not going to be able to go it's really tight. And there, there are buses, different places. Like we got met outside the Dungate. We got met outside just different places, but it's really busy. I mean, traffic wise, it's busy. The streets are narrow and mostly it's foot traffic on, uh, in old Jerusalem. So, um, yeah, so we walked down towards Hezekiah's tunnel and we saw some, let me tell you, we saw some incredible things that I wish I had stopped to appreciate a little bit more things like they've uncovered what they believe to be um, David's palace. And it's got, I mean, we, we walked basically through it. I mean, we could see where 
the rooms were and we could see pillars and there's a little bit of debate on whether it was David's palace or not, but it's in the city of David. It's close ish to the temple itself. It's a big structure. It's well-crafted. Um, even as far as things like, um, some of the craftsmanship bears markings of certain, um, like foreign nations, like art styles of foreign nations, architecture styles of foreign nations. And those are exactly listed, um, like the exact nations that they see represented in the art style are listed in the Bible as well as having had relationship with Israel as having helped David with building materials. So very, very likely, I think that this actually is David's palace, but it's kind of hard to tell because it's, this is one of the, this was one of the more confusing spots for me because it's exactly like most places like, okay, I go and here's the building or here's the archeological site. And it's a big park, right? Here, it's like the modern and the ancient are so intermixed that it is impossible to tell when you're going from like, here's an ancient site to here's a modern site. So we got to this place, which uh, seemed like the entrance to Hezekiah's tunnel. You know, this is where you would buy tickets to go in. This is where you'd go to the bathroom before going down. This is where you could change clothes if you wanted to. Now, unfortunately, uh, I was wearing jeans because we were going to be in churches earlier in the day. And I didn't want to have to change into shorts. To, and I thought it depends on how high the water level is. So I did change my shoes. I got to put on like some water shoe things. Um, but I changed them here at this like more modern place. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to go from this place into Hezekiah's tunnel. But there was a long walk in between. And in that walk was where it got ancient again. And I'm like, oh man, I'm missing all this stuff. My phone's in my backpack because I don't want it to get wet. And we just, we weren't sure like how long... It's going to be between getting all our clothes ready and shoes on and everything and actually being in the tunnel. So we just have to be ready. Um, you know, and we had all these admonitions, about like be ready, be listening, be together as a group. And so this is what we try to do. But in, in that process, I kind of missed some of the amazing things about seeing David's like potential palace. There's also areas where you can see like, if this is his palace looking down over into the valley and you can see other homes and you can see the roofs of homes, which is where potentially David would have looked over and seen Bathsheba. So all of that was interesting. And I, I can still picture it. Like, even though I didn't stop and appreciate it and take pictures like I would have liked, um, I still have a mental image of it and can appreciate it. So when the stories come up, it still helps. Um, but we did pass through all that stuff and you're just, it's constantly down, 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 down. You're descending pretty quickly um, down different stairs and uh, little hills and stuff. And the whole time I'm just like, okay, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Like, when is it actually going to be here? When, when are we officially in it? And what you do is you go through this, this uh, lesser tunnel called Warren's shaft. And as soon as you enter into Warren's shaft, you're like, okay, this is it. Like, this is the tunnel. And it's still not, you still have to go through the shaft a long way in order to get to essentially almost the base of the mountain itself, um, where you're at like the Gihon spring and the, and the pool. And then you're in the tunnel and it goes underneath like the whole, pretty much the whole city of David. And if you remember in, in, uh, Hezekiah's time, they were being sieged. You can read about this in Isaiah, they're being sieged. And Hezekiah had this idea because they couldn't bring water into the city and water is so, so important in Israel. It gets so hot. And so they dug this tunnel to get water from the pool of Siloam and the Gihon spring. So all of this can, uh, or the Gihon spring can then bring water to the pool of Siloam so that Israel then has access to water during the siege. And it, it potentially saved them because without water you die. Um, so we did finally go down, 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 and we went through different layers of ancient and modern, ancient and modern, ancient and modern, and then boom, we're at Hezekiah's tunnel. And I was so excited. Like, I mean, I was just really, really pumped about it. Um, the shoes I had were not the best, to be totally honest with you. Um, they, they were like socks almost. They're just very thin, not a lot of protection there. Um, so it was kind of unfortunate that we had this whole walk because we're like walking over these metal grates and like metal stairs and stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm going to die. Like I don't have the greatest ankles. This is not going to go well for me, but we made it there. And finally we stepped down into about 
a little over knee high of water and it is so cold. And it was just like, here we are. Like finally, once I touched that water, I knew like, this is it. And it was exciting. Like for a long time in this tunnel, it was like high ceilings and sure it was like a little bit tight, but it wasn't bad at all. And I thought if this is how it is, man, people really had me scared for nothing. Like this is, this is easy. Sure enough, it did get a lot smaller and there was quite a long time where I was like almost doubled over pretty much in half. Now I was fortunate. I had a hat on and I had a a headlamp. Other people had headlamps too. They, they recommended that. Um, but it kind of saved me from the ceiling quite a bit of times. Other people didn't have this and they hit their head quite a bit. So I felt bad for them, but you're just in this single file line just walking through this tunnel. And for a long time, it's like, wow, this is so fun. Like I'm really trekking through the water. I can look on the walls and see the chisel marks. And I mean, you're not really getting a lot from the guide because he's way up ahead of you, but it's just, you feel like you are literally just trekking through an ancient site. And it is so, so cool. And eventually the water does like get quite a bit less to where it was about shin height and quite a bit warmer because it's so much shallower. Um, and we we're just trekking through it and they'd yell back, Oh, there's a hole up here. There's a hole up here. So make sure you're careful. And I felt bad because at the parts where it was the smallest, I couldn't turn back and tell people behind me, there's a hole here. I like, I literally couldn't turn anywhere. I couldn't move. So it was just like, I'm going forward. I hope they heard that there's a hole because I can't yell it back. Um, but I definitely heard at least one time the people behind me like, Oh, there's a hole there. And I was like, Oh, I should have told him. But anyways, we, we all kept on going. Fortunately, um, our group was quick. I mean, they said it can take up to 40 minutes depending on who's ahead of you. Um, if they're moving slowly, if there's a group that is stopping and talking or sometimes groups will stop and sing songs and like chant and stuff. We did have that happen one time towards the end, but not too bad. Um, but yeah, they said it can take up to 40 minutes. Fortunately, it took us like 15. Now 15 still feels like quite a bit of time when you are underground like that. Now I don't get terribly claustrophobic, so that wasn't a huge deal. Every once in a while you do have thoughts like, man, there's a lot of like earth on top of me and I'm in a very small space, but I I never like panicked or anything. It wasn't quite that bad. Um, and as far as like squeezing through it, it wasn't horrible. Most people, like even after I came out, they're like, I can't believe how you did it. But it was mainly height. It wasn't like width at all. You know, you can walk sideways and be fine in the smallest parts if you need to. But I really didn't even need to do that. I pretty much, I mean, my shoulders got soaked from the walls for sure. And they got all scraped up. But it wasn't, it just really wasn't that bad. The worst part was the height. Because if you're stuck and you're like bent literally in half and suddenly the line stops and no one's moving anymore, that's when it gets to be not so much fun. So started out being super fun. Other times it did open up um, and like be a little bit taller. So that was nice. But yeah, I, I mean, all in all, if you if you can get there, absolutely do it. I don't care how tall you are, how big you are, whatever. Like just, just go. It's worth going. There's going to be a time in the middle where you think, man, will this ever end? I'm not having fun anymore. But it's going to get fun again, and when you leave, I guarantee you, you're just grinning from ear to ear because it is such a cool thing to be able to be interacting with this like really ancient site, and it's so utilitarian and still in function. So I just thought that was incredible. Really, really one of my top things I did in all of Israel. But after this, you you walk for a while through the tunnel, and you get to uh, the Pool of Siloam. So this is what the water ends up leading to. And this is where people in the, in the city would go to gather their water, like during the siege. And, um, they use it for things like drinking and cleaning and whatever. I mean, whatever you need water for, that's where they would get it from. So it would have been kind of a pain to go, have to go all the way from the city of David down the hill to get water and then straight back up. Honestly, it goes back to, Um, The ancient city is where we went, where we saw the cisterns and we'd walk down into those. And I mean, it's a lot of stairs, you know, but this is like going down a whole mountain. So I'm sure there was a little bit of grumbling to do with it, but also they have water, they can live. So there's an amount of gratitude that comes with that as well. Uh, But we come out uh, into the pool of Siloam 
and um, it, it was dry. I mean, there's obviously no water there. They've diverted the water so that they can excavate the place itself. But it was so neat to be at this place where miracles have happened and Jesus was familiar with them. I mean, I don't think they're walking through Hezekiah's tunnel in this time. At at Jesus' time, this place is still used for water and the pool of Siloam is used for um, washing and, and ritual, ritual washing, essentially. So um, it's not like they're taking tours through Hezekiah's tunnel, but that was like Hezekiah. It's interesting because you go from Hezekiah's tunnel, which is very much Old Testament, um, you know, such an ancient site and you're amazed by the fact that two people, one can start from the top and one can start from the bottom. They can dig through the earth and somehow meet in the middle in order to bring water into a city. I mean, just truly an engineering wonder. And you go from that and you enter into the pool of Siloam, which would have been there in the Old Testament, but we associate it so much with the New Testament. And it just felt like literally walking through my Bible from Old Testament to New. And there's there's just nothing else like that. It was truly incredible. And something I was thinking while we were there, mainly I was concerned about getting water because I was incredibly thirsty. We've been up and down stairs and down a mountain and through a tunnel. And it, it had just been a lot that day. So I, I was tired and I needed some water. But I was thinking as I was there, um, it doesn't actually say that Jesus was necessarily at the pool of Siloam when he healed the blind man. It says, as he passed by, I'm going to read from John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So, potentially, uh, it could be that Jesus is like right around the pool of Siloam. This is a pretty wide open space. And so there would have been room for him to be like away from the pool, sent him to the pool, and then he came back to, you know, seeing. So that's possible, but it could be that he's in a completely different place altogether. Either way, he sent this man, didn't lead him, sent him to the pool of Siloam. If you're a blind guy, to get from anywhere in Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam, that is an act of faith that I never think of because I can see. You know, if someone says, go here and do this, it's like, all right, well, I'll give it a try. It's not that hard. For a blind person, going somewhere at all without being led is tough. So maybe he found someone to lead him, but that's also, you got to ask someone. Or even if he's close to it, it's like he's got to pick his way around people. And it's a hard thing to move around when you're blind. So this man's displaying an act of faith that I think is um, pretty impressive. And obviously it works out for him because he comes back seeing. Um. So this, it was cool to be here just to any place that a miracle has occurred, like a verifiable, I know this miracle happened, especially as it's tied to Jesus Christ. Absolutely incredible. And I'm a fan. After this, uh, it was the end of the day. So we, we've gotten through the day, um, but we had to wait for a long time. There, there was a question about, are we going to walk back up the mountain uh, to get to the buses where it's easier for them to pick it up, pick us up? Or should we wait here at the bottom and they'll pick us up here, but then we might be stuck in traffic. Secretly, I was hoping that we would wait and let the bus come pick us up, even if it took a long time, because I was beat. I was ready to do it if we needed to. Um, you know, if we, if we needed to walk up the mountain, I would do it, but it sounded great to have the bus come pick us up, even if it took them a little bit longer. Um, fortunately, that is what happened. And, you know, I think I've been under underplaying like it's funny you know you look back on a trip and you're remembering the cool things that happened and the good things that happened and the bad things that happened when they're funny but my toe like my left toe was absolutely killing me I mean it was it was so swollen and so irritated so red like every step I took was just like absolute burning and it was mitigated by the fact that I was in interesting places and I just didn't you know, I'm going to go there. So whatever pain I have to go through to get there is fine, but it was really difficult. And so I'm standing here in water shoes thinking, I don't want to put on my uncomfortable shoes that kill my feet, but also I don't want to wear these thin water shoes that have no protection walking all the way up like old ancient cobbled streets to get to the top of the mountain. So 
it may sound like a weak man's answer, but I really was hoping the buses would come pick us up. And fortunately they did. So I was really grateful for that. And that was the end of the day. It was honestly incredible. One of my favorite days. It was so busy, which is why this one went a little bit longer, but it was also just one of my favorite things. I mean, just being able to explore the city of Jerusalem, being able to see the connection of Old Testament and New Testament, and then literally walk that through Hezekiah's tunnel to the pool of Siloam. Just truly an adventure of a lifetime. And I I was so happy to be able to do it. Uh, Next time on day 11, it looks like we were in uh, Masada, which, wow, what a story that is if you're not familiar with it. And if you are, it'd be cool to tell you about it. So we left Jerusalem to go and see this, um, which I was a bit sad about because Jerusalem was an incredible place and there's just endless things to explore in that city. So to leave it was a bit sad, but also we were seeing some incredible things down in the desert. So um, you don't want to miss that. Masada, Dead Sea, uh, Qumran Scrolls Caves, um, lots to talk about next time. So stay tuned for that. Hope you've enjoyed this one and I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you.